This episode of Ride of the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Chris, have you taken advantage of their ready-to-heat meals? We've been talking about uh, this for the last couple of months. Great ways for you to easily feed your family, and you're pretty much just popping something in the oven and, and arranging it maybe on your table to look fancy. It's pretty nice. It's what I love. Yeah. Lo- little cleanup and delicious food already prepared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're talking about meatloaf, roasted chicken, tamales, roasted salmon, uh, bistro sandwich if you want to go kind of more p- picnicky. the poke bowls. They've done a version of that. And a new meal that you introduced us to us last week, uh, Chris, was the Chile Riano dinner. Uh, the we- Chili's Rilano, how do you pronounce that? <laughs> I was just going to jump on that. And I'm never the one to correct pronunciation because I don't get it, but I believe it's Rieno. Rieno. It doesn't have that. It doesn't have a little squiggly line on it. Anyway, the chili relleno. Um, these these chilies. Yeah, these chilies are stuffed with Monterey Jack cheese, rice beans, guac, pico, and it comes with pico and, and chips. Uh, the best part is if you if you order by noon, you can have same day curbside pickup later between three and seven. So if you're like, Ugh, I don't want to cook today, uh, let Zupan's Markets take care of it for you. And it's a good opportunity to order at any one of three locations at uh, West Burnside, uh, McAdam right there in St. John's and also uh, Lake Oswego as well. But while you're at it, you can go in the store and find some great deals. Between now and the 26th of May, you're going to get North Atlantic Lobster Tail Grillers. Nice. Uh, for $12.99 each, which is a pretty good deal for lobster tails. And also they have a number of salads, Greek salad, a verde salad, everything potato salad. You're going to save a couple of dollars per pound. Polar sparkling water, uh, you save $3 each. That's uh, two for $7. And then one of my favorite things ever, I always grab one, whether I'm <laughs> at Zupan's or anywhere, is uh, the Tate's Bake Shop ch- cookies. And my favorite are their chocolate chip cookies. They are the perfect cookies to eat, you know, eat right out of the out of the box or dip in coffee. They're oh, fantastic. Nice. So take advantage of those sales now. And of course, if you subscribe to the news feed, you're always going to be aware of the great deals coming down the pike at Zupan's either at that moment or the following week. So it's a great idea because you can save some some um, quite a few dollars on some excellent products. Definitely. And of course, you can find the location nearest you or sign up for that news feed at Zupan's.com. All right, it's time once again, Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with your host, Chris Angeles from Portland Food Adventures. And Court Johnson engineering this podcast for the last seven years or six and a half, but especially the last two months in um, in a fashion that we're not used to. Yeah. So um, here we go again, and we're getting back to our normal podcast interviews, which um, we were, we're going to do the last interview that we we conducted with Chef Philippe Boulot. Hey, Court, did I get off hand? Did I get off track there? Like introducing you? No. Well, you might have. You did a little. You introduced me, but it, it was a good segue. 
Um, <laughs> nah, I thought it was. It was well, it's taking it's taking a while. We we haven't been in the studio together for a while, so right, and we and, we, and we're still not. Be like riding a bike, yeah. But um, but at any rate, so no, I was going to say we conducted an interview with Philippe Hulot of Multnomah Athletic Club right before or just as the pandemic was starting to take hold and people were going to need to react. However, it was right, it was two days before uh, the travel ban was implemented and everybody decided, uh, okay, it's time to make some changes in the restaurant world. Yeah. So we had that interview ready to go and kind of put it on hold, given that we thought we ought to start talking a little bit about um, reactions to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. If you haven't listened in, for the past couple of months or ever, but we'll, we would uh, suggest you go back and listen to the last two months of our right at the moment series. I just did, I just did air quotes when I said that sure. sitting here in my, uh, in my living room mm-hmm. recording this. Um, so, uh, but if, but we have some excellent episodes starting with Craig Peterson at ringside steakhouse and John Gorham at Toro Bravo when this initially hit what their impressions were and going right through to talking to Craig, uh, Craig Gerard of stone soup, um, which was a great episode because they're doing so much in the community. Nick Zukin of me, Mole on what his thoughts were. And I think they were very cogent. Mike Thielen of feast, Michael Madigan of Bowery Bagels, who's a, a very intelligent Portland food businessman. Nate Snell, speaking of intelligent businessmen. And uh, and I think we had a few others along the way, but uh, I know we did. So those are good to listen to. And if you, again, if you're new to the podcast, we have six years of archives to listen to. Um, so uh, we're, we're happy to get back to where we started, which was with interviews with people in the Portland food scene, talking about how they got where they are, where they took their right at the fork moment. And so with this one, we have Chef Philippe Boulot of Multnomah Athletic Club with us. And this is the second of two parts. The first part was the previous episode. If you're listening to this one now, the one right before this, we discussed the pandemic with Philippe. And this is the interview we conducted in, I think it was uh, February, I mean, I'm sorry, March, mid-March, March 12th. Yeah, no, um, it was it was that week because I, I think we, we we interviewed him on a Monday. Tuesday was when the NBA shut down. Wednesday was when the travel ban went in. And by right. Friday, uh, by, my office. By Friday, restaurants were closed. Yeah, by Friday, restaurants were closed. My office was closed and uh, you, you were stuck at the beach. Yeah, tough place to be. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I think I have one of the good deals. But um but any rate, uh, everybody's got there. It's been a really, really strange situation. There are so many people that have been affected. I was reading a story this morning on the people in uh, large events, you know, concerts and so forth. Those are not going to be happening for a while. Right. And those are people that can't really do much productive at home. Yeah. So um, just so many, you know, we're going to see restaurants start open, opening soon. I know some of them are very uncomfortable with the ambiguous guidelines of no more than 10 people at a table while maintaining six foot 
six feet of distance, and those 10 people must be within the same bubble. So um, I think we might start seeing shower curtains up between tables. Who knows? Um, but at any rate, um, we're, we're hopeful to return to some normal. We don't know when that's going to be or what that's going to be. And we hope there's not going to be a second wave to start closures all happening again. Um, and Philippe, in his interview that we ran right before this, discusses that and is surely unclear. They're doing, taking a lot of precautions at Multnomah Athletic Club. There's a place that is shut down as well. And they have more than just restaurants at Multnomah Athletic Club. So, um, so that will be returning. But Philippe is a uh, gentleman that I had the really good fortune to get to know during a travel Oregon and Feast Portland sponsored trip in 2018 to Southern Oregon. And he and I got to sit on the back of a bus going through some beautiful country in Southern Oregon and uh, going to some wineries and out to dinner, a few hikes um, through some production facilities. And uh, so we became friends on that trip. And uh, he's been so gracious to me ever since. Uh, Philippe Boulot is one of the elder statesmen in Portland, having been nominated for James Beard Awards uh, four times in a row, culminating in, a, um, in an award for Best Chef Northwest slash Hawaii back in 2001, I believe, when he was at the Heathman. Mm -hmm. uh, he had worked his way through a number of hotel restaurants from Paris to London to New York to San Francisco um, to get to Portland and um, certainly run one of the most important restaurants in Portland in the late 90s and through the early 2000s, right into the mid-teens. The Heathman before he took over full-time as executive chef at Multnomah Athletic Club. Those who aren't familiar with Mac uh, might be surprised to know that at Multnomah Athletic Club, uh, they serve more covers in Portland, uh, according to Philippe and others that we've heard from, than any other restaurants in Portland. So uh, over 2,000 meals a day served at, uh, at the Mac and um, and that's a lot. There are uh, countless employees to oversee um, there, many of whom were just laid off and hope to be back soon at their positions. So um, our conversation with Philippe takes us from France through to the United States and Portland in its earliest food days. Uh, well, there were early food days way before Philippe was here, but in, in terms of the farm-to-table movement and when Portland started to plant the seeds to be on the food world map, that was Philippe that was there with a number of other folks uh, as well. So he's a great guy to hear from, certainly a classically trained chef with um, with a worldly view on what's going on in the world with food and what's going on in Portland. And uh, I'm really excited that we finally had him on the podcast. Our interview with Philippe, our two interviews with Philippe, aren't the only Phils that we've interviewed from Multnomah Athletic Club. Yeah, that's right. We had uh, Phil Alswalt, uh, the the executive sous chef at Multnomah Athletic Club. He was on the podcast about a year ago. Right. So that's easy. If you go to right at the fork.com there's a search bar in there so you just need to put in oswalt if you'd like to hear that episode 178 
178. Yep. You can put the number in or his name. Mm-hmm. Either way, it'll work. Uh, and following today, you can put in Boulot, B-O-U-L-O-T, and you'll get two options, one of which is this. Thanks for coming in. Hey, thank you. We, it's not every day we have uh, Portland chef royalty in the house. Oh, thank you. There you are. So, um, uh, it's been a long time coming. We were going to have you last year, but we ended up having your chef, Phil- Philip. Yeah, Phil also. Phil. Yeah. So, we don't call him Philip, we call he's him Phil. He's a small Phil, I'm the big Phil. You're the big Phil. So, he's Philip Oswald, yeah. who is your chef at the Mac Club. Yeah. Which, um, before, I, I don't know whether this is disclosure or happiness, but thank you so much for treating us to an incredible crab dinner. Yeah, we had a conversation week. on our trip southern Oregon, and you mentioned you love Dungeness crab. I must be the restaurants that buy the most Dungeness crab in Oregon. I would imagine that you have the restaurant that buys a lot, that has the most of a lot of things. Y- yeah, you're right. Right? So let's just cover that a little bit. A couple of little background for those who aren't in on our conversation, because you and I really got to know each other. We'd met a couple of times in passing in Manzanita on the beach. Yeah, that's correct. But uh, we both took a trip with um, with Travels, Travel Oregon. Yeah, yeah. It was a few. It was a few organizations, but it was put on by Feast. Yeah. Last year, so they did a trip to Southern Oregon and sent people through there. And you and I happened in the airport say, oh, you're going on this, great. Well, there were a lot of fun there, yeah. Yeah, it was great. So, But it was nice to see, I saw a couple of familiar faces, but it was particularly Mm -hmm. nice to see yours. So you and I um, got to know each other during that trip. And of course, I had mentioned that I love crab. There are a lot of things I could have mentioned that I love too, by the way. You love good food, good wine, good restaurants. Yeah, you're better at the wine than I am. Oh, okay. Well, so, um, and, but I, you know, I, I love it, but I don't crave wine. But that's beside the point. Um, but you and I got to travel to these wonderful spots in Southern Oregon. We went to Oregon Caves. We did a little Medford. Yeah. Um, and we were in this bus uh, chatting. Yeah. Chatting before you know the coronavirus was an issue. You didn't. Have, we didn't have to worry about either being contagious. Yeah, we never thought about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Those days. Um, but at any rate, we had the opportunity to get to know one another, and so you have twice invited us into your delightful Mac Club, which is a place I would not, I don't know anybody who belongs there. I've never known anybody who belongs there. Uh, there's 22,000 members, so right. somebody knows somebody. Well, that I should clarify. No one's ever said, hey, I belong to the Mac Club, come to dinner with me. But I'm, I found out when you talk mm-hmm. about it, oh, my boyfriend belongs there or something, so uh-huh. belongs to the Mac Club. But it's really a delightful place. And then in the process of discussing this with you, you were not only we were not only talking about lots of things I want to talk about today in the podcast, but that the Mac Club of all restaurants serves the most covers, which would be the most dinners. Yeah. Or the most meals, I should say, in the city of Portland. And it's not something someone would think of. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it's private, so we don't talk about it. And so it's kind of unique that I come to talk about that. Uh, we have five restaurants. We serve a couple thousand meals a day, sometimes more, sometimes less, an average of 2,000. 
And uh, we have what seven hundred employees in the club, six six eighty. Wow! And how many chefs? How and many cooks? In the kitchen, I have seventy employees. Seventy employees. And seven chefs. And how are you able to sit here? You're in your you're in your chef coat, but how are you able to sit here calmly and do that? You, well, I know how. You've got a lot of experience. We're going to go back deep into your resume. You've been doing this for a long time. Long time. So for forty two years. Forty two years. How's yeah. How's that happen for someone who looks like they're 50? Yeah, it's very... <laughs> thank you, I appreciate <laughs> But uh, I'm 61, and uh, I started to cook when I was 14 years old, fully when I uh, 19. And uh, I was cooking in the time where Teflon pan didn't exist. I was cooking when cling film was just being invented, and you didn't have any Robocoop or blender. Uh-huh. And sous vide is kind of new, but I really cooked in a way that few chefs have cooked before. Uh, well, nowadays, in those days, they were. Right? In those days, that especially in France. In right? France, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, back in those days. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that was where true chefs were born, and they came from was. France, you know, when I grew up, it wasn't until, you know, before I got to Portland and yeah. learned about the foods. French, in, in French, French cooking is a was, classic. It was like the basis of pretty much all cooking, Escoffier. So very strong technique, very strong skill, uh, discipline-based kitchen. Uh, actually, it was strange coming from France to San Francisco, where the, nouvel, the cuisine of San Francisco was developing. Uh, was such a, a weird uh, move for me from the discipline of working with Robuchon and and Maxime and all good restaurants in France to work in San Francisco was like a, 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 such a different experience for me. And explain that how it was different, and then to, you know indicate whether it was it was painful for you or it was a pleasure well you know it's not painful it's so different so you adapt to it i was executive sous chef at the cliff hotel four seasons i stayed at the cliff when my parents took us i there. transferred me wow. and uh, uh something i remember was like fire roasted scallions and mm -hmm. i'm like what the heck are they grilling onion and make a big deal of it <laughs> and it was uh merchandising, marketing, a different way of perceiving the food like in France. A green onion in France is not a big deal. You chop it up and, and that's it. But in San Francisco, you could make something out of nothing and make a big deal of it. It's like in France, uh, you work with the season, with the market, with what's local. Even in Paris, you have your little farmer, your little charcutier, the bread guy. And in San Francisco, suddenly working like uh, fresh tomato in season was a big deal. I was like, okay, why well, is good tomatoes? You see, that was a, the awakening of uh, French cuisine and the terroir in California and in the States. And so, I was there to see it, but I've lived with it all my life in France. So it was kind of like, oh. Do you think that was... Um a function of we're uh, we're a cap really capitalist society compared to France, so we're selling all the time. I mean, it's it goes without it goes without mention that you know that the United States is all about selling, selling up, and I think f 
I'm guessing France was just more about the cuisine and the experience, and you didn't have to. That's what it was. Yeah. So in San Francisco, you need to make a splash. Nowadays, you need Instagram, those things. And I don't know if they're Marketing, prominent. merchandising, yeah. wording, uh, working your uh, publicity, uh, it's all important. In France, you work on your reputation, you are solid, and you're accepted like that. And the, the strong base is fundamental. It's like uh, charcuterie, uh, right now it's a big deal. Well, we all do charcuterie at home. It's like in the old f market in France on, on Saturday, on Friday, mm -hmm. on Wednesday. It's not a big deal. You go to the charcutier and there's a ton of charcuterie. And here was like, actually, when I came to Portland, making a pate was a big deal. Uh, talk about 25 years ago when I came to Portland. I was like, it made me smile, but I appreciated people to enjoy that. Right. So you jump on a wagon and you participate and you make your cuisine and your terroir evolve. And, and it was nice for me to introduce uh, farmers and uh, French technique and people really like that. Do you think uh, that's missing? So you have 70 employees in your kitchen. How many of them have, other than learning from you, but how many of them have a classic French, uh, tr some classic French training? So I have seven chefs. Uh, my chefs have worked 15, 20 years with me, and they, I send them to France. I send them all the restaurant. We do promotion all over the States. They are super well-rounded in technique. And the core group of cooks are very skilled at that. And we have a turnover of young cooks that come, learn, and move on to make more money somewhere else. But through the 26 years I've been in Portland, we've trained a lot of young cooks that definitely have the French technique now and the, the style of uh, they learn from me. How essential is that technique to being a great cook, chef, nowadays? Well, I find it very important, and you can see people coming without that. They don't know how to organize their stations. They don't have good knife skill. Um, they don't know how flavor responds to others. Um, so it's very important to have those, to know how to butcher a rabbit, a baby lamb, to know to make a pate, to make basic uh, sauce, to make... Uh, a great soup, a salad, to understand the ingredients, to make sure you respect these ingredients, treat them properly. And there's a good benefit to that. It's good business. You make money by treating good ingredients and you capture your customer to, and you make good food. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a that, that's all about it. Right. So do you think, listening to you talk about what is intrinsic to you, so the reputation side, the technique side versus the marketing side, do you think that's what maybe appealed to you to get leave the Heathman and go to the Mac Club uh, a few years ago when that opportunity arose? Well, I stayed 14 years at the Heathman and uh, it went through lots of change of business. The company I left uh, was very strong in uh, business but didn't have the value I was looking into, and I didn't believe in them. 
And uh, the Mac recruited me. Uh, the uh, food and beverage director, Cameron McMurray, uh, came and asked me to come and help him uh, fix the club and help him uh, take the club in a different direction. And what was appealing to me, it was, first of all, my customer base. All the people I knew from the Eastman were there. And it's a big space with lots of... Uh, um, potential like great kitchen equipment uh, different restaurants so a pub a gourmet restaurant a takeout restaurant an outside restaurant cafeteria for 680 employees big banquet special event and I, I cannot stay sit I need the diversity I need to put my hand in everything and the club offered me that so that was very interesting so it, it enabled you to, um, to move away from the hype. Well, not necessarily the hype, but at the Heathman, I'll put it this way. You're out of the spotlight now. You're out of the, the city spotlight. You're certainly in the spotlight where you work and all the people who enjoy your food. They're very aware of you, but you're not covered in either anymore, very likely, unless you're doing a collaboration with somebody. That's quite correct, yeah. And is that something you, you like? It was the spotlight important to you? You got a lot of awards. I mean, you've, you're, you know, you've got James Beard. Uh, of, best chef of the Northwest right, best chef in one Right. And I would imagine that a lot of people who've moved to Portland in the last 10, 15 years, 15 years, well, maybe not the last 15, but they may not have heard of you. You're, you're this incredible person who's done so much for the city of Portland, mm -hmm. but if they just got here in the last five years, they wouldn't, they wouldn't know. Yeah, 26 years ago, Portland had a close of good chef, but was not that known. And I came from New York at the time, and uh, I brought a lot of my contact here, uh, and we developed Portland cuisine. I mean, it was not nationally on the map. And uh, suddenly, uh, Pelis, Greg Higgins, uh, Corey Schreiber, and myself were some of the first chefs to really travel all over the states to promote Oregon. And we had to develop the market for that. So we had to find farmers. We had to get people interested. We got uh, to... The wine industry had a lot to do. There were a dozen of winemakers 26 years ago. And we worked with them, we brought them to New York, to San Francisco, did big function, brought guest chef back to Portland. And we had lots of fun. The 26 years ago, I had the best time in Oregon ever. So who was promoting all that? Who was flying you? Who was... Who was uh, well, the ownership and the management of the Eastman at the I'm time the was very interested to do that. And uh, they brought me from New York to make sure I did that. Mm -hmm. So it becomes Greg Higgins before me did a fantastic job and I took it the next top, uh, next notch up. I had a lot of uh, big business uh, experience, lots of hotel. So I could combine my uh, expertise of cooking and business to this man and the business flourish. I mean, I brought this restaurant from what, two, three million dollars to when I left was eight million dollars. Mm. And so it was a solid business with a solid reputation where definitely 
It was a place in Portland. Well, and also when you left, it was a different ball game than when you started. So at two million, it wasn't very competitive in Portland. And at, when you got to eight million, you were competing with a lot of other restaurants. Oh yeah, it really ramped up very fast. Suddenly, you could not do just a duck breast with a couple of blackberries. You were mm -hmm. like, whoa. You had to up that to three blackberries. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You really had to step up your game. Oh, so... What what has it been like for you to watch, um, you know, the whole thing blow up? Just just take the number of so you were you established yourself in a hotel restaurant, yeah. and there are certain things that go with that, right? So you yeah. have you have to cater to not only Portlanders, but you've got to you've got to have a more worldly view. Hotel restaurants is a complex business to operate. It does operate seven days a week. So you have to do breakfast, lunch, afternoon tea, dinner, banquet, room service, special function. And you obviously cannot be there all the time, otherwise you go crazy. So the key is to develop people, to make sure they flourish, trust them and make them grow. And so the combination of developing people, doing good food, and you have resources too, though. Uh, and using those resources to grow your uh, your business was fantastic. And this man offered me that. I like small restaurant, but lunch, dinner, or just dinner, it's too repetitive for me, a bit boring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be tough after d you're doing all that. But so the that uh, you know at the time there, and I don't, I can't name them all, but I mean there was Philippe Lo at. The Heathman, in terms of hotels, and I know later on, I mean, after you left, Vitaly Paley started getting, oh, the hotels, I'll do that. Jose Chess is now in a hotel. Yeah. Everybody's all of a sudden looking for a hotel because I think it gives them a little more stability. But that's also an indication of what's happened. I, I don't think these hotels would be going up if the, the food scene here didn't draw a lot of people here, not only to live, but to, to as tourists. So how has it been to watch that when you were, it was pretty sleepy. When I moved here in 2005, mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot going on. I well, mean, you, there was some, but. Yeah, you brought the point, like working restaurant versus hotel. Different people can do that. It's working in hotels so complex. When I came in the U.S. through San Francisco, then New York, and then Portland, uh, I actually, in New York, I met my friend Greg Kunz that just died. Uh, was one of the chefs that brought hotel food. Hotel food in the States was never good. Howard Johnson's. Yeah, exactly. Well, Ojo actually in the time of, uh, could have had some potential, but they revert back to making as much mosaic and cutting, making short cut. Mm -hmm. But when I came in the States, some hotel, uh, like me, I was at the Mark Hotel in New York, really wanted to have star chef to bring the food really to help them sell their room and bring the reputation. Food is PR. It's free PR. It's free uh, dream. It's free excellence. But you had to find really pe skilled people to do that. So San Francisco for me was a four season, high standard. But New York working with Mr. Raphael at the Mark Hotel was just like, wow. They really developed me a lot. And I was with a group of chefs in New York with Jean-Georges, Daniel Boulud, Grey Coons. I mean, 
really hotel chefs that had fantastic skill and for some reason I met them in in France we had different mentors me I was mentored by Joël Robuchon and the other guys had star Michelin chef and they came to the US and we were a group of young French chefs like really developing hotel cuisine and French technique and I did that in New York uh, with quite some success and I brought that in Portland and Portland was interesting because I could see the potential but it wasn't there so you really had to develop it and I had to find a company and the owners I really wanted to make it work so we had to do promotion like uh, the Pinot Noir festival and and all kind of food and beverage and and just bring it to the Eastman and couple of small restaurants followed suit and they had the same vision and uh, suddenly the Portland cuisine became on the map through the James Beard Foundation actually. Yeah, when's Michelin get on board? I don't see any Michelin star in Portland really. I'm not sure. Uh, not as I remember them. I've right. been off the loop for uh, 30 years on the Michelin star but I work in a two three-star Michelin in Paris. Mm -hmm. uh, Joël Robuchon, chez Jama, I did the opening. And I met my wife at L'Arquestrat in Paris. Mm -hmm. Three of the best three-star Michelin in France. So I was conditioned to that excellence and I've not seen it in Portland yet. We are uh, pausing here during the podcast to talk about one of our favorite places to eat when things are normal, which is Ringside Steakhouse. Now, uh, Ringside is currently closed due to the pandemic, uh, but they've been doing some really interesting things. Uh, you might have seen it in the news. Uh, they had a steak sale recently that uh, had a line down the street. A mile. Uh, a down, mile. That's, mile how down badly the you, that's how badly you want to get in on the next sale. Yeah. Much more organized, but it was a mile down the block. They immediately regrouped and said, "Okay, let's fix this." Yeah, and so now they're now Ringside is um, uh, doing pre-orders, and they or you order ahead of time to pick up uh, in the parking lot uh, when they are ready to do so. The next one will be Saturday, May sixteenth. So. What you want to do to be able to get in on incredible deals on their um, on their aged beef, mm -hmm. steaks, lamb, and barbecue ready meal kits is you want to go to ringside.com, get on their mailing list so that you are the one of the first of thousands to hear uh, about how to order these incredible products for pickup and enjoy at home. And Chris, here's another great way to support Ringside Steakhouse. You can also purchase gift cards on the website, ringsidesteakhouse.com. Uh, obviously, these gift cards would be able to use when you're able to go back and, and eat at Ringside. So right now, if you purchase $300 worth of e-gift cards, you'll get a $50 bonus gift card. Or when you purchase $500 worth of an e-gift card, and uh, a $100 bonus dining card. So definitely a great time for you to uh, support uh, Ringside Steakhouse and also get some little something extra extra once you get to go back there. So do you think necessarily that the one can have, one automatically would have a better dining experience at a Michelin star restaurant than some of the best restaurants in Portland? Uh, and not, I don't necessarily mean only yeah. Portland, but... So I've, I've 
had the fortune, the good fortune to travel in Europe and eat at quite a few Michelin star restaurants and not. And I have to say, in many cases, my favorites are not the Michelin star restaurants. I, I don't eat like Swiss star Michelin. When right. I left Joël Robuchon, I said, I'm never going to put little dot on my plate anymore. Right. That was over. There you go. And I am not going to treat the people like that. And I'm not going to make it a, a, a nightmare. I just want to have good food. I'd be more like a casual restaurant, maybe one star Michelin maximum. I'm more about the ingredient and the food and the region and the people and cook a bit more freely. Mm -hmm. I'm not so constrained by, constrained by discipline. I walk away from that and, and I don't think Portland is made for that. So we are more like about good food, fun, relaxed atmosphere, um, and, and rightfully so. We're not there yet, but with the Ritz going in, right? So, you yeah. know, what might 20, 20, 2030 look like, I guess? Let's go further. But, um, you know, we're getting to be, some of the little signs of Seattle and, and San Francisco. We're seeing little, bit by bit, it's starting to look a little bit more like I don't see any city. Michelin uh, business coming to Portland and making good business. I think it'll be a, a big mistake. I don't think the market is accepting of that. And it's always very strange. I always was wondering why I, people would not spend money in my restaurant in Portland, but they would go to Las Vegas to eat the same food and spend three times more. That's always been a bother with my customers. I'm going to give you the best experience. You don't want to pay for it, but you're going to spend your money in Las Vegas to go to one of my buddies. I said, what's wrong with you people? You need some slot machines at the Heathman. Yeah. Not. I mean, it gets, it, it creates a difference. We're on vacation. So that must be it. I yeah. think that might be it. I don't know. Do you get the opportunity now that, um, you know, you're nearing towards looking at retirement at some point. Do you get the opportunity now to relax and enjoy? I know you like hunting and you, you're out. Do you hang out with some of your old, Chef buddies, are you friends with the folks that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I, I, I love the chef community in Portland. I'm not doing as much as them uh, with them uh, because I'm moving away from doing all those promotion. Mm -hmm. um, I used to spend my weekend doing fundraising and promotion, and I'm focusing more on myself now. And working in a private environment, uh, there's no need for me. We don't promote the club. Right. So there's not such a need for it. But I still support some uh, community more on um, people that present the, preserve the environment, the water. I'm a fisherman. I'm a hunter. Uh, I have a cabin on Mont saint Helene on Swift Reservoir. I'm an outdoor person, and I love wine. And so when, when can, uh, I will support the community definitely. But do you get to go out and sit and dine with, I know everybody's so busy, but with Vitaly, I'm not going to name specific names, but the folks that have been part of the food world here that you enjoyed, now do you get to, you know, sit back as a, as a I don't mean to call you an elder statesman, <laughs> but as someone, a, a mature statesman who's enjoyed the fruits of, you to enjoy the fruits of your labors. I, I love to cook at home. Mm -hmm. And I love ingredients, so I like to try it myself and cook at home. 
And in small parties, like uh, 10 people, 12 people, I entertain quite a lot. And that's what I like to do. But I love to eat uh, primarily at my friends. So if I go dine, I will go and dine. Uh, I really like Jose. Uh, I like Vitali. Have you been to Jose's new place? No, not yet. Masia. I got the spell. I got the pronunciation yeah. right finally. And, and uh, so I'll go and eat at my friend's uh, restaurant by curiosity, mm-hmm. support them. And I, I eat less and less. I eat too much. I drink too much. So I'm trying to cut down on that. Yeah, well, I've been saying that for years. But <laughs> you still have to get out once in a while. But I love it. And right. I love to see my friend cooking and I love to see their restaurants. Are you critical when you're enjoying that food? Or are you, are you able to just eat and enjoy it and not say, eh, should, this would have been I, better I like this? I used to be very uptight about food and what needs to be done. And now less and less. And now I just enjoy the ride. I appreciate the effort. Uh, everybody works very hard. And I, I just enjoy to see what people do. I found that recently, and we're the same age, so I found that recently to, I all of a sudden am catching myself from wanting to tell someone who's a professional, and I'm not, this, yeah, this was okay, but it could have been better if it had been this, and I realized, you know what, they're working hard. They don't need to hear my opinion on what I yeah. would have enjoyed better, like how the, what, how the pizza should have been. Or. Yeah, it's impossible to critique a restaurant. I mean, the... The experience is such a, a little a snapshot of what they are. Right. I mean, there's more going on. There's turnovers. There's ingredients. There's uh, volume. There's. It's so difficult to to create uh, to execute perfect the ideas that you want to do. So you might get close, but it's never right there, or it's rarely right there. Well, and that's also why. Professional critics, and there are fewer of them now, especially in Portland, they'll go to a restaurant 10, 20 times before they actually give it a review because it's not fair to base it on one or two experience, which in this Instagram world, it's based on three minutes. Yeah, the old idea of critic reviewing and categorizing restaurants should be banned. It, do- it's, it doesn't work. So you're happier with the public putting whatever they want out there? Yeah, I... You know, critics should go in a restaurant and tell a story of their experience. They should refrain from uh, criticizing and giving it a rating. That's absolutely ridiculous. People can do that. Customers can do that on their own. Mm-hmm. Says, I Give a profile of the place. Give them the story. But don't tell them it's good or not good or what. Just give, give people a story. That's the right thing to do. Unless the experience is so miserable, which you don't come across no, very no, often. No. But, but I'm, not, I'm not saying, no, 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 no. I'm not saying give them a bad rating, but if it, here's the thing. Call attention to the positives, I suppose, or if you're not happy, don't write about them. Yeah, exactly. Just leave, leave it out. Good. I totally agree with you. So, uh, yeah, it's not worth talking about. Yeah, exactly. If you don't like it, forget it. And I found... Uh, I find it increasingly, it's probably a function of my age, when I read reviews, um, I've had that and I liked it. And they're turning people off to it, or they like something that I would never like. I'm finding it now that younger people are just tuned more to Asian flavors, and I like them, but they favor them in almost every case to go that direction. Customer can make their own choice and can make their own critic. Right. And I'm not saying I don't, you know, I have to be 
sort of politically correct, but I'm also, I'm honest when I say I love Asian food, but I just notice in Portland, it feels like that's what gets all the attention now. Yeah. Oh, and, and rightfully so. I mean, you know, Asian food, uh, 26 years ago in Portland, American, Chinese, oh, I mean, oh, American something. Come on. Uh, Portland went so far in, in 25 years. Food-wise, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a different city. And we're on, we're from, so I moved here in 2005, and we're three generations in with chefs having staff that goes out and do, does their own thing. So I feel like from then, you're getting, you know, the Scott Doliches who were, you know, he was second generation, let's say, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. to Corey. Yeah. And then Corey Schreiber. And now there are the folks who learned under Scott, but then now there are the folks who learned under those people that are going I mean, out to open the it, restaurant. It's unbelievable, yeah. I find myself, like, after 25 years, seeing layers of chefs that have been growing in Portland, and there's a bunch of newcomers as well that brings uh, new ideas and different challenges. It's been very interesting. Do you think we need more new here? Or do you think we need to focus on go to Paley's Place? Or go, go to the places that have been around that have stood the test of time. I've said this a few times on this podcast. I have nothing against new places. I just wonder if we need... We really need more new places well, to energize mar- it. The market corrects itself. I mean, there are some solid uh, reputations that keep doing very solid work and newcomers that attract curiosities. But as the quantity of restaurants is booming in Portland and the economy might tank a little bit, uh, I-, I can see some trouble ahead. You're going to have like to be right now. very good, very solid. It's extremely hard financially to manage a restaurant. Right. There's little money to be made. Um, uh, employees are very expensive. Uh, and uh, well, we'll see who stand up the, to, to that type of uh, economic pressure. And it's coming right now. So we had, oh, it, yeah. we had it with weather in 2017. We saw quite a few places that you take off 10 days of profit from a restaurant and it puts them in a really tough position. Oh, a bad weekend would just thank you. You have to go at the bank and borrow money to pay the bill. Right. So, yeah, bad weekend. Now, I'm seeing uh, on my Facebook feed restaurant owners and chefs that are saying business is down significantly because of the coronavirus. Oh, yeah. And that's not going away soon. That's it's gonna, a uh, tough uh, business. You're working uh, your butt off to make ends means. Employees are difficult, employees are expensive, food is expensive, customers are demanding. Definitely, it's, there's a selection uh, coming. What, uh, how do you feel about when you say employees are difficult, um, 2020 versus 2000 years ago? Well, there's nobody to work right now. I mean, everybody's looking for employees. To start with, you cannot find anybody. Uh, people have less loyalty, maybe rightfully so, but people move on for 50 cents, a buck more. They, they move fast. They are they not that... Even, they don't even show for interviews, I understand. And listen, I put, I put 30 interviews, I might see eight. And maybe three of them would come half an hour late. And 
You don't see that. And they're looking at their phone while they're talking like, to you, I yeah. imagine. It's like, you really want a job? So they are picking what's convenient, what works the best. And, and that's a market. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but that's what it is. Difficult to find people. People are not as knowledgeable and quite demanding. And uh, it's expensive to have employees. You have a week of sick time and soon you're going to have a leave of absence paid leave of absence for over 120 employees. 120 employees, it's a medium-sized business in a restaurant business. Mm -hmm. And if you have to pay three months of leave, ooh, I don't know how you can recuperate. We'll see about that. So it's great to be social. It's, I don't know how we're going to pay for it, really. It's a little different at the Mac Club, I would imagine. I, I can't speak for it, but I would imagine what? things get challenging you can raise, you, you can, outside of the restaurants, you can raise the fees every year. Oh, it's bit. tough for everybody. Right. And uh, there's so much you can raise the fee. The advantage for the Mac, it's a non-profit business. So we go there, but you have to follow the budget. People uh, are very aware uh, where the money goes, so you have, to, you have to be very careful. Do you think people will pay $25 for a hamburger soon? Because that's what it's going to take. Well, if you take Kobe beef, you already pay for uh, right. twenty five dollars. Well, yeah, that, that, but that's the so exception. But I'm seeing price and quality is going to be a challenge. You're absolutely right. So, what are you going to eat? What kind of good food, and how much are you going to be willing to pay for? Personally, I think people should pay the right price for smaller portion. But portion size is something like uh, in the states, it's not really happening. I think people should eat better and less quantity. Well, yeah, that's good advice. That's, that's a, a must. good advice, Dr. Boulogne. <laughs> I should take everybody should take that. But um but I've been hearing for years people sitting in that chair saying that the the pricing structure with labor and service is just not it's not this it's not supporting what they want to do. Food should be more expensive. And so when Restaurants mm -hmm. try to go to the European non-tipping model. They can't do it. To me, that makes perfect sense to do it, and it's great, but people reject it. They, they just can't accept it. Yeah, it's uh, deeply anchored. Actually, uh, small restaurants are going to have a hard time to compete with corporation. Which yeah. sucks. Uh, as a small restaurant, everything. you don't have any discount. You pay full price. As a big corporation, you can pay 25% less for everything you buy if you have buying power. So small restaurants are going to have such a tough time. What do you think the answer to that is? Are the, are the corporations going to start going to some of, I'm not going to name a smaller restaurant in Portland, but we know many of them, and saying, hey, listen, let's make you part of a group. Yeah, so the next four years are going to be super selective and are going to change the face of restaurant business in Oregon. And that's going to affect a lot. It's going to affect real estate because Ooh. if you've got leases that are can't be supported, yeah. um, you know, that's every restaurant, not every, most restaurant closings that we've seen over the last couple of years, it's a lease problem, right? Yeah. I mean, it may have been the economics, but the lease is the, is the foundation. Yeah. And if they can't strike a good lease, an agreement on a lease, they're gone. That's correct, yeah. Uh, people are going, before they go in business, and they need to study their case big time. The, it's a food of passion, and small restaurants open out of passion. It's great, but oh my God, 
each time I see somebody doing that, I'm like, whoa, tough road ahead of you. Does uh, do do you get called on by any of these folks? They do they call on you and say, hey, listen, here's the concept. What do you think? Yeah, often, and they rarely follow my advice. <laughs> and and then you get to watch. See and what I'm happens. like, oh my god, he's going into it. And one two years, I'm painful. Yeah, I would imagine it's it's tough. Uh, it's become tougher and tougher out there. And again, w- the next few months are going to be very interesting. You probably have a hedge. See, the beautiful thing about the Mac Club, and not to talk about the business model too much mm-hmm. because it's a private entity, but you have a hedge there because people, right, they have to dine a certain amount. No, it's... Um, of- they don't have food and beverage minimum. Oh, I didn't... I, th- I thought uh, there was. No. Thanks for so correcting that. And just go and patronize the restaurant if they feel like it oh, and so pay it for could, it. it could affect business there. Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. It's not... Uh, it's not a walk in the park. You have plus five restaurants, 70 cooks. You have to really watch out. So when you're away, are you able to put your phone down and relax? Because oh, that's totally. a lot of responsibility. Wow. So you've, But you've got enough great people in place. That My you chefs feel like- are the best in town. I mean, truly unbelievable chef. That, uh, like, like, that's, uh, that's good to hear. Uh, unbelievable people working for me. So how often do you get to get do you get out there and go fishing? Well, I take my uh, regular vacation, but uh, at the club you have what uh, four weeks paid vacation and week of sick time and some holidays, and uh, sometimes I take even time off, non-paid, to do whatever needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And I love my time off. I would imagine so, yeah. and you use it wisely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pausing a moment here, Chris, to uh, give a shout out to our friends at Toro Bravo Inc., uh, John and Renee Gorham, all the great things they do. And we're talking about iconic Portland restaurants like Toro Bravo, Tasty and Daughters, Tasty and Alder, Plaza del Toro, uh, Mediterranean Exploration Company, Shalom Y'all, and Bless Your Heart Burgers. Uh, such great places to eat in Portland. Yeah, and we're thankful to be associated with those restaurants. Proud of that, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. And so if you've been listening to the podcast, you might listen to our episode with Renee Gorham, uh, where she indicated some of the things they're doing now with Feed It Forward PDX. I don't know whether this is part of it or not, but they're doing sliding scale meals that you can enjoy yourself based on what you can afford. So call them at any of their restaurants, and they're happy to provide a meal for some for some folks who are having uh, tougher times than usual right now. But the other thing that they're offering is to make a donation for meals for others. So your donation can go to uh, sponsor a meal for homeless youth at PEAR, a Portland organization, or women and children at Rosehaven, or a family at Portland Homeless Family Solutions, or anybody experiencing homelessness at New Avenues for Youth. Uh, They're also... Uh, allowing you to sponsor a, ca- a meal for healthcare workers. And again, even if it's not for you, if you want to sponsor a sliding scale meal for someone else in need, you can order that at one of their restaurants. So um, you can also contact anybody in the food world who's listening. If you want to contact uh, John and Renee about donating your food that they can put into those packages, please do. So you would learn more uh, at any of Bravo's websites, and you can email them there, or you can call them for takeout at those places, too. Let's not forget, you can just order straight up 
off their menus and they appear on the website. You can start at torobravoinc.com and then choose the restaurant that appeals to you most at that particular point in time. Toro Bravo, thank you folks for being such wonderful people and a stellar example of how a community works together to get through something tough like this. So what are some of your, um, with, when it comes to food or not food, but some of your, your favorite places you've been, best experiences in your life that you've had uh, traveling? Uh, traveling in Spain, in Madrid, was unbelievable. I did a promotion uh, in Madrid, and uh, they took us everywhere. That was unbelievable. I did another promotion in Brazil at the Maxud Plaza, and uh, we ate some unbelievable food. Uh, wherever we go, we, we, we are treated, I mean, I do promotion and with places that just brings me in the best restaurants. So all over the world, we do see fantastic places. And if you're amongst great chefs, there's no, I mean, the food, the, lo- the quality of what you're being served is really high because no one's going to come below a Correct, certain yeah. bar. Yeah, it's best wine, best food. I'm a French master chef, so every year we do a symposium somewhere in the States. Last year was in Mexico, and oh my God, that was just like pff, unbelievable. Mexico uh, City, or uh, no? We went to Plaza del Carmen, somewhere mm-hmm. in a resort there. Uh, it's just like the we open a branch of French master chef, and we are training young Mexican chef to to raise up to. To higher level, and that cuisine is evolving so fast, and I was just like unbelievable stuff. No, oh, I've oh planned to go down and haven't done it yet. There have been a I've been teased, and everything has been canceled for yeah. whatever reason when mm-hmm. I've gone. So, um, do you? Is your heart? Do you have, still have a lot of French heart? You must. That's kind of a rhetorical question, but if it came down to it, do you? Do you? Consider yourself an American, or uh... I, I'm a French chef at my core. At your core, right? I mean, I started cooking when I was 14 years old uh, during my holidays, and I've been cooking now for 42 years. So the food and the French culture is at the core of my being. And so um, I know it's impossible to say because it depends on the season and the mood and what you're doing. But do you have something that you feel is the best thing that you or some of the things that you enjoy preparing the most that that are the most enjoyable to eat oh yeah wild mushroom i mean i have a cabin in the wood i'm an outdoors man so wild ingredients just it makes my imagination like the wild mushroom the porcini the chanterelle uh, the truffle uh, picking a colberry at the end of august just like oh that, that's it. And that's your that's your your French foundation. I would think did that is yeah, that it's something the you learned ingredients, in when you see ingredients are so beautiful and so perfect that it's just I just want to cook them. And is that what drove you what brought you out to Portland was the Well, I started that? to cook with my to my grandmother in Normandy. One grandmother lived through the war by feeding the family through garden. So they are exceptional gardeners. And my other grandma was a dairy farmer. So I've been going, spending my uh, summers 
with my grandmother cooking the pork, doing the charcuterie, feeding the workers, and food was at the core of my being from quite young. And what are some of your best food memories when you were a child? Oh, uh, my grandmother in, uh, in Vimont, in a dairy country, uh, used to do a rice pudding called Turgol. So when the baking oven, uh, the, the, the baker shut down the oven, it stays hot for a long time. So you put your rice pudding there with whole milk, a bit of sugar and lots of cinnamon in a big earth uh, container. You leave it in the food uh, in the oven high and it just goes low, low, low. And you have like five inch of rice cream, cinnamon rice cream on top and the pudding at the bottom. Oh, a dream. Are you still, do you make that now? I make that now. The same yeah. way or it's not no, quite? No, it's, it's not, not quite the same way. Grandma used to do it like, oh, beyond that world. Yeah, you, you have to go out and find a farm. Uh, with a big jug of uh, cider. Oh. Is there anybody, um, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but is there anybody, any, yo- any young chefs in Portland that are doing things that just blow you away, that have you've been really excited about? Um, wow, well, there's a bunch of them. I mean, I uh, know it's hard to isolate. I, I, I could not say. I don't really have a favorite chef, but I, what I like the most right now in Portland, it's the diversity, you know. Mm-hmm. And the chefs are going and they are becoming more specialized, more unique. But uh, I, I appreciate all what they do, from Russian cuisine to uh, Japanese sushi to a steakhouse. Like uh, or I don't like steakhouse. I prefer something like boulard mm-hmm. or prefer something like imperial, uh, roasted fire. Uh, it's got a little spin And Chesa's uh, Spanish influence. Um, I mean. And, and it's nice to see all those influences happening and occurring because for a long time, I remember saying this, someone would say, what's this restaurant like? And I, as much as it was great, I'd say, well, you know, it's farm to table, it's Portland. It's, it's There were a lot of those that were like, let's just say, I can say it safely because they're not open mm-hmm, anymore. Mm-hmm. There were a lot that were like Wildwood that patterned themselves after yeah. Wildwood and still do. And they're great, but it's really cool to right, have the diversity the, and, and the and you see the passion too. Right. Well people are totally passionate. You Europeans have more heart and passion, I think. Well, that's not necessarily true, but having uh, having the opportunity to get to know you for three or four days. Yeah. And Jose Chessa, I mean I can see there's there's a certain passion in yeah. and one's you can heart. see Gabe at Le Pigeon and you can see well yeah so he's an American so Lisa Schroeder doing Omi a woman oh my God what Lisa oh, does yeah is incredible fantastic I mean you can see people putting the passion and the style is very different it's not to be critical it's very good very different and mm-hmm. lots of passion and, and you just like that I mean look at the quality of um uh. You know, they sponsor the podcast, but look at the quality of John Gorham's restaurant. And John, yeah, for sure. They're, they're so, the level is very high. They're always busy. Yeah. And he's been, chal- you know, had a health challenge for oh, the yeah. past and year. And he went to his new opening. Uh, right. I, I, I saw you at Plaza del Toro. Plaza del Toro, fantastic food, generosity, and trying to do more. I mean. Yeah, and you know, you can't just, 
you can't just turn it off when you have a little health, health, not a little, a big health problem. Yeah. And you're fighting that off. That takes, um, same thing with you. You You have to surround yourself with staff to, so that all isn't reliant on you. Yeah, it's never a fixed road. There's always something going bad, and you have to be able to just stand up and make it work. So do you have um, goals for, let's say, so you, you admit it, I didn't ask you, 61 years old, 65 down, doing the math is four years away. Do you have a plan on what you want to do to in your life for the next four years till you get there and then after? Um, yeah, I... I'd like to keep working. I've done a lot of consulting and I've done a, a lot of special event and fundraising and people are calling me left and right. Working less is a goal. Uh, I'm not ready to work less yet. And uh, uh, we have a new general manager at the club and I'll see what his plans are for the future. But uh, I'm there now and I intend to keep pushing them to make them uh, special and successful. How important is are all your restaurants to the Mac Club? What where would you say? You know, if it, it's not a it's not a golf club, so at a country club, the golf is really really important, and the food may be important. No, I think the food is very important at the club. It's a they have a social agenda that's uh, part of their. Uh, uh, of why they are there. So the dining is very important. The pub have family and pub uh, experience and the gourmet restaurant where people entertain and the to-go restaurant when you finish at the gym and you want to have a snack. And uh, in the summer, we open a bistro up there and it's a great socializing time. I mean, 22,000, remember, it's a small city. Mm-hmm. And they have the best experience, and they have great value, and the demand is uh, is there, and people are uh, savvy, and they travel, and uh, they expect the best. I would imagine, and we've talked about this a little bit, quite a bit less pressure for you at a club like that than, for instance, at the Heathman, when you were not. You know, things could change, ownership could change. In a big way. Oh, at this man, I saw, I mean, five different ownership. And, oh my God, totally different. And they uh, wouldn't leave you, they didn't just leave you alone. Actually, uh, my comic and Schmick took the restaurant, and I didn't believe I could work for those guys. Mm-hmm. So I flat out told them, so I, I can't do what you do. And one day they called me, and they said, listen, we don't want you to do what we do. We want you to be a partner, actually. And I became their operating partner, the only partner they had in a public company. And they kept me there to uh, keep the concept uh, alive. I was very surprised, but from something like I thought I was never going to make it, uh, I became an operating partner with them. So that was quite something. There was some uh, one person or a few that recognized... We got something unique here. Let's, yeah, let's not I mean, turn it smart into... restaurant operator don't miss the opportunity to have talent, right? And so, to be unique too. And you want to turn that into? Uh, I'm not going to name it, but it's one of their other, other restaurants that you know are no longer the names when you talk about Portland. Yeah, food. and after Landry took over, Landry is good for because they have a very successful business model. Mm-hmm. But I didn't feel it was the right match for me. I had, 
I don't operate like that. So did you give it a little time to see if maybe they would come around I, the way that more McCormick and I kept consulting it? for this man at least two more years after oh. I took the the job at the club uh, because I had my employees there. The concept carried my name. And eventually, they just wanted to use my name and not me even coming. And I didn't feel comfortable with that. I said, ah, not a good match for me. Plus, the club needed my full attention. It's a very difficult business. It's, uh, it was growing, and I could not do two restaurants in the same. Yeah, no, I would imagine. So 2,000 plus covers a day, plus... Plus the East Man, that was like, oh thing. my God, that was rough. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a lot. Yeah. So, um, you know, I feel like there's so much time and you, there's so much to cover. I feel like we're, we're, um, it's easy to miss a lot of great questions and talk about, uh, different things, but our time is limited, unfortunately. Yeah. My parkour could be interesting for viewers growing in France, starting to cook 42 years ago. Your what? Your, your, my, uh, resume. Yes. So... Basically, I went to school in Paris for catering and restaurant business mm -hmm. for three years. Then I cook in some of the best restaurants in Paris, which is L'Arquestrat, Chez Jamin, uh, Hotel Nico. And then I worked uh, in London with the Four Seasons. And then... Uh, How difficult was it to get into those places? Because... As you mentioned before, all these great chefs that you met in New York had already been to France, so everybody so, was trying to get into I the great restaurants. I moved a lot, and I never had to find a job. Oh, they were... And people recruiting me all through my career. Uh, I mean, 42 years later, I still haven't put my, re put my resume together, really. So if people we, look, come if we and looked get at me. your LinkedIn, which I'm sure probably doesn't even... Maybe exist. My kids... Uh, My son, Francois, is savvy in uh, technology and says, Dad, you, you have to work your LinkedIn a bit better. So mm -hmm. he fixed it for me. But I never thought about doing it. All right, you don't have to. So what does he do? What are your kids? Uh, my son works for Columbia Sportswear as uh -huh. a merchandiser. Mm -hmm. And uh, his uh, new wife works for uh, Open Sesame. And no interest in the food world? Uh, my son went to college in Eugene and during his college year worked at... Uh, Uh, King Estate Winery, mm -hmm. uh, with one of my chefs I had in New York. Oh, small world. Yeah, my kids and my daughter is in New York now, and they all at some time had to work in the food industry. Uh, all the promotion we do, the kids came with us, so they cooked, they bossed people around, and they have the same uh, perfectionist idea in their food. Very nice. So, um, let's not... Let's not leave off where you were in France. I want to get from your background in France at some great restaurants, and then how'd you get over to the United States? So I was working at L'Arquestrat. I met my wife, Suzanne. She was a pastry chef there. And uh, we got married, and then I wanted to move to the States. And instead, we went to London. So one of my food and beverage managers from the Hilton, recruited me at the Four Seasons Inn on the Park in London. And uh, we went there. We had my son in London, actually. And uh, from London, Four Seasons wanted to transfer me to the U.S. And why did you want to come to the U.S.? What was the draw uh, for U.S. You? is kind of the dream of the young French chef. I mean, 
everybody wants to come to the US. Really? Lands Still? Of hope. Still? A bit less, actually. I haven't seen a lot of young French chefs moving uh, in the country anymore. Mm -hmm. But at the time, that was like, you really wanted to go and work in the U.S. Why? Because it, it, there was more notoriety? The dream, or? opportunities, I mean, the social but it, aspect. But it's France. I know, I know, but as, as a U.S. citizen, you'd like to go to France. Me, I wanted to come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. badly. And you did. You ended up in some of our best cities, right? You were in New York and San Francisco. Four season told me, he says, pick and choose where you want to go. Oh, man. You are one of our lead chefs there. You, you decide. So San Francisco was attractive. I had fun there for one year. And then um, somebody recruited me out of New York to open the Marc Hotel. Uh, it was an unbelievable experience. I remember staying three months in the hotel and my next door room was Madonna's room, right in Central Park, uh, 90 and 2nd. Uh, Did she invite you over? Were no, you I saw her. Like, with Madonna? No, no, but we met in the elevator a couple of times and nice people. She's exactly your age too. Did you know Is that? Is she? Oh, oh, yeah. Not at all, but yeah, small a, lady. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a number of people that were all born in our year. I assume you're 58. I'm uh, 61. No, 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 your, oh, yeah. uh, your birth year, 58. 59, yeah. 59, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little your senior. Yeah. Um, so, uh, oh, I lost my tra train of thought what I wanted New to York ask New York was you. an oh. unbelievable experience. Um, so, regarding being in charge of an entire kitchen, how would, you, how would your employees say you are as a boss? Uh, discipline, strict, fair. Uh, people respect me. If you fit, you fit. If you don't, you don't. And when you went over, as I understand it, when you went over to the Met Club, there was a little bit of a shake-up, correct? No, I, I, so a lot of people left, actually. But, well, that's what um, I meant. I, I don't push people out. But the people have to step up to the game. And sometimes they find a, it's a place for them, and sometimes it's not a place for them. So, in other words... We don't know. Everybody's different, but yeah. someone new came into the kitchen and there was a different style going on of management. Yeah, I never met the previous chef, or rarely, so I wasn't very aware of his uh, style. But uh, I was looking more forward to the future and the possibilities that the Mac had. So I didn't even cross over with him. Right. And I came in and I did my stuff. Well, yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna say, "Oh, this is the way he did it," so I'm gonna change no, my style. I mean, so is it a little? So you talked about discipline. Is is it harder to be a disciplined chef in the kitchen with generation of uh, some of the people who are a little? Time are changing. Yeah, uh, you have to be more accommodating. Uh, you could you have to be viewed as uh, fair. I'm fair, but I'm I'm tough and I'm pragmatic and straightforward. So it could be tough on certain people, right? And but anybody who can survive that, man, they've I've created uh, a lot of very good chefs came and worked for me right. through the year. Lots of them. Are there uh, just as we have to wind this down? Are there any uh, in Portland that you're particularly proud of that when you're talking about creating? <sighs> Some great things, and it's okay because I realize also that if you mention three and leave out five, then 
That's not good for you. Yeah, thank you. Let's leave it at that. All right, good. I love all my chefs. They did some, whoever can work for me for at least two, three years, they have a career ahead of them. I mean, so uh, unbelievable I w- people. I would say as you're looking at restaurants and you're looking at the about part of the website, see if they worked at the Heathman or the Mac Club, and then you'll know if they have the right, the, your, yeah. some, of, some of a little of you in them. We do uh, an alumni uh, dinner at the Mac from some of my chefs that worked for me before, and it's, it's very pleasing to see that. That must the be success. Fun. Well, good. Um, so actually, I, my favorite chef that Sarah Pliner at Aviary. Oh, that would be. Uh, she'd love to hear that. I'm sure. Oh, unbelievable so just, chef! Just to, just to say that again with a little less f- accent. That's Sarah Ply- Pliner at Aviary. Yeah, uh, I think it's. Did one she of work the, for you? Yeah, oh, she, she was did. a line cook for me, and she wanted to go to New York. I gave her some couple of chefs, and she went there. And I think she does have a unbelievable talent. And might be one of the best chefs we have in Portland. And also, probably, I, I can't say this, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say the most underrated and underappreciated chefs in Portland because she's consistent and everybody always loves her. And it's very hard for aviary, as it is for a lot of restaurants, yep. to stay mm-hmm. in the limelight now. Oh, you yeah, have yeah. to do things like she was doing a lobster lobster roll. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah, got yeah, yeah. to okay. get attention that way. But I noticed it, she just stopped those. Oh, yeah? Yes. Well, it's expensive, so you can do that a little bit, and, right. and that's it. So she'll come up with something else. But I haven't been, so again, I haven't uh, been Amazing there in a while. chef, amazing. Yeah. Good. Well, I hope she's listening, and we'll call her attention to this. So oh, she's thank gonna, you. She's going to have to get through the whole podcast, which is a delight and a pleasure to get to her mention. Um, Great. I can't thank you enough for coming in, and I'm really glad we were able to do this. When I first mentioned to you, I had a feeling you necessarily didn't want to do this, so I'm... I'm glad you were amenable, not only amenable, but excited. Oh, that's my pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Great to uh, spend another hour with you. Thanks. We'll find some more. Yeah. Thank you. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right